Good morning, and thank you for being here to join us for this State of Indian Nations Address. I am humbled by the presence of our tribal leaders. It is always an honor every time we gather to walk and to work side by side with many of my heroes and sheroes that I've come to know over the years. Thank you for this gift. And to our elders and youth, I am inspired by your strength. Just standing here in the back listening to our youth, there is no question our future is in good hands. There is no question that the work we do is going to survive into the next century. There is no question that our youth are going to continue to take the legacy and gifts that we've given them to stand tall against any conflict, any force designed to take away our tribal sovereignty, to take away our sacred sites. I am so incredibly inspired every time I hear from our young people. So thank you uh, to our youth for that presentation. You are the very best of Indian country, and I continue to learn from the examples you're setting in our communities, from Maine to Arizona, from Florida all the way up to Alaska. And to our partners and allies standing shoulder to shoulder with all of us in Indian country, from the bottom of our heart, thank you for your support and solidarity. And to the NCAI Executive Committee, my friends and allies, I call them the Sweet 16, uh, our board, thank you for your leadership, for standing every single day, every single meeting, side by side as we confronted the challenges of Indian country through a global pandemic, through decisions coming out of the Supreme Court, every single challenge we faced as a board, we did not shy away. We directly confronted every single thing that came to our table with grace, with humility, with vision, with courage, and with bold political action. And I thank you for that from the bottom of my heart to each and every board member. All the things that we have sought to do at the Congress, we can take stock and just look back. Over the last four years, I've had the opportunity to speak to tribal leaders and indigenous nations around the world, presidents and diplomats, corporate executives and grassroots activists. Time and time again, I found that just as our ancestors taught us, one of the best ways to prepare myself as an individual, as the president of the National Congress of American Indians, is to fast. When I fast, I find that I can center myself and I'm in a place where I can hear the voices of our ancestors. I can hear the voice of our creator. I can hear the voice of future generations yet to be born. We know, and I know many of you in this room and many of you listening know firsthand the power of fasting. When we humble ourselves, when we deny ourselves the most basic things in order to ready ourselves and prepare for the work ahead, it is incredibly powerful. And I've come to learn that that is the most powerful, indestructible part of our being. That is the place where we join our ancestors in that timeless space that knows no beginning and no end. And the courage that we have when we're in that state to share these principles. In a deep, fasted state, I find clarity. And today, I am clear about this. Over the last few months, in a fasted state, as I work to not only enter this, the last year of my presidency, but as I traveled the world to meet with global leaders and others, I found this one truth to be not only for our generation, 
but in honoring of those that have gone before us and honoring those yet to be born. We have to show up. That's all we have to do is show up. We are prepared. We are ready. We prepared an entire lifetime in our DNA. We have wisdom. We have knowledge. We have strength. We have resilience and we have power. And in our minds and in our dreams, that too is infinite. We have all that we need individually and collectively. We just simply have to show up. 80 years ago when NCAI was founded, there was no seat at the table for us. Day after day, decade after decade, we forged ahead with an agenda that many considered to be quite radical. But today, after nearly 80 years on the front lines of policymaking, standing side by side with our partners, we don't just have a seat at the table. We have influence and we have representation all across the federal government, all across the United States, and around the world. And now, to make good on that progress, to stand up for our rights, to defend tribal sovereignty and safeguard our children's future, we have to show up. After generations of struggle, and time and time again, of our inabilities, we have demonstrated resilience. We are all of us together, as strong and as united as ever. Let me remind you, just in the last 12 months alone, what we've accomplished. This is that part of the state of the nation where I get into some policy. So let's talk about some policy accomplishments. This past year, we came together to secure advanced appropriations for IHS. No longer will our healthcare facilities be left to wonder when their budgets will be approved or when the money will be sent or whether they'll be able to provide life-saving services to our people even if the government shuts down. This past year, we also came together to make sure that VAWA was not only reauthorized but expanded. The new act provides our tribal justice system with crucial resources to protect Native women children, our law enforcement officers. And it makes clear for every would-be offender, violent crimes committed against our people and our children on our soil will be under our jurisdiction. This past year, we also came together to achieve parity with state and local governments on critical pieces of funding. I'm talking about more than $1 billion awarded in grants and loans to expand high-speed internet, $580 million to provide long-awaited water resources, and nearly $470 million for tribal nations living on the front lines of climate change. We did this. We have incredible momentum, and now it is up to us as tribal leaders to just show up and demand more. More for our elders, more for our youth, and more for our future. We must show up and make sure that the Farm Bill includes provisions to help repatriate our lands, 
to build our economies, to protect our foods, to protect our medicines. Passage alone isn't enough. We as sovereign nations must have a final say over what we do on our lands and how we choose to take care of our own people. We must show up and fight for the return of our lands. Our land is sacred. It is essential for the full exercise of our sovereignty, for the preservation of our traditions, and for the health of our tribal communities. And while we're making progress in restoring our homelands, we must read down and redouble on our efforts. Now is the time to push as hard as we can to secure favorable federal policies that promote the restoration of our tribal land bases, that ensure our sovereign decisions are not only respected, but they are upheld. We must also show up and fight for federal fundings at levels to uphold the trust responsibility and the legally binding treaties. Because while the Biden administration has made historic commitments to meet the basic needs of tribal communities, federal funding, as we all know and see every single day for our tribal programs, remain far short from the debt the United States owes to our tribal nations. And that's why we will continue to push for bills like the Honoring Promises Act, which seeks to provide funding to tribal nations at the levels we are rightfully owed and at the levels we were promised. Similarly, we must show up on issues of inequality of dual taxation by demanding that the federal government affirm our authority to tax and regulate commerce on our own lands without interference from the states and demand that the United States simply get out of our way. The U.S. tax code fails to provide our tribal nations the same opportunities as states. Our present is the result of the blood, sweat, and sacrifices of our ancestors. Today, it's our turn to continue their struggle and to fight for a better future for all of our tribal nations and citizens. We demand that the federal government provides Indian country with the same economic tools and resources as state governments. This fight is so much more than about just simply money and commerce and our economies. It's about true parity as sovereigns so that we can exercise the inherent powers to better the lives of our own people and for the United States to simply get out of our way. And I'm telling you, when I stood on the front steps of the United States Supreme Court last November, through prayer, and through a fast, I had the words that came to me so clearly that there is nothing that they can do to separate us from our children. There is nothing they could do to separate us from our sacred sites. There is nothing they can do to take away that which the Almighty Creator has gifted to each and every one of us from when time began and that's guaranteed until the end of time. There is nothing they could do, no court decision, no piece of legislation. But you know what? 
Since that time, the Creator has also given me additional clarity about that. And the additional clarity is simply that it's so much more than the love and affection we have for our children. So much more than the love and affection we have for our sacred sites. For our relationship with all things living in the waters and the sky and the forest. It is so much more than that. As great and as beautiful as that is, it is so much more than that. And what do I mean by it? It's not simply the gift that we receive, that we hold in the present generation. It is the gift of the spiritual connection we have with all of that that the creator has gifted to us. Because when we appreciate those gifts in that place, that is where we find ourselves reunited with our ancestors. That is where we find we have the strength of our creator in every word, every action, and every decision. So that, my friends, my family is the source and power and strength of Indian country that our ancestors knew, that our ancestors taught us. The spiritual part of who we are is indestructible. And that cannot be broken. That cannot be annihilated. That cannot be destroyed. That cannot be, deter- that cannot be terminated. That is who we are as native people from the beginning of time until the end of time. And so when we step into that place where we advocate for our policies and we step into that space with all humility. We have nothing that can stop us and there is nothing that they can do to take that away from us. And the visual that I see that we all have seen through the years is that brave warrior that gets on a horse in front of a firing squad and a barrage of bullets And that warrior simply extends his hands out and looks to the heavens and can go from one side of the battlefield to the other against a barrage of bullets and remain unscathed and strong and and humble as ever. That is what we were taught. And that is where we need to go at this crucial moment of time. Our ancestors have worked so hard to get us to this place. The lives, when you consider the 150,000 lives of our sweet, dear children that were taken to boarding schools, the sacrifices they made, every tear they shed against every infliction of abuse and neglect, those tears run deep within our spirit. Those tears are what motivates us to seek and to have an unquenched thirst for justice and for healing for all of us. So I call upon each and every one of you in this moment and in this hour to do as our ancestors have instructed and as our creator has instructed. Wake up with prayer. Throughout the day, be grateful for just having the breath of life. Be grateful that while the most powerful country on the world tried to assimilate and destroy us, we are still here. Back to my speech. (laughs) 
And while I'm speaking of our fight for parity, <laughs> I'm very proud to say that thanks to so many Native people working in public service, showing up and making real change happen, we now have unprecedented access across the highest levels of government. For the first time, we have a Native woman in the President's Cabinet. We have representation in the White House, at Interior, the USDA, the Department of Commerce, in Treasury, the Office of Management and Budget, as well as IHS, Army Civil Works, FEMA, the Small Business Administration, and just this last week, there is now an Office of Representation in the Social Security Administration as well. We have more representation in Congress than ever before, with one senator and four representatives in the House, along with many Native and non-Native staffers who are working behind the scenes in congressional offices who actually understand Indian country and who work with us to make real and lasting change. I cannot overstate how much it matters that we have Native voices being heard and listened to at the highest levels of decision making. These folks are helping us hold the trustee accountable by guiding them from the United States government and guiding them from within. They're breaking down political obstacles. They're building a pathway for communities that have been systemically excluded for far too long and entirely invisible. And what's more, they're sharing the very best of our collective brain trust and all that it has to offer to the United States to benefit and to serve our interests. It gives me so much hope to see Native people in elected office and in federal leadership positions making historic progress for all of Indian country, for the United States, and for Indigenous peoples around the world. Now, as we celebrate this progress, we must con consider the context in which it was made. This past year, these past four years, have been fraught with economic uncertainty, environmental degradation, a racial reckoning, a global pandemic, an unadulterated crisis. Through it all, Indian country stood tall. Against every kind of adversity, we have moved mountains. After the outbreak of COVID-19, when many in the United States were still in flat-out denial about the pandemic, we recognized a real and present danger, and we didn't hesitate to act. I'll give you one fine example. In South Dakota, the leaders of the Cheyenne River and Aglala Lakota Sioux tribes. Are you in the house? Woo! Yes. They didn't waste time waiting for the government to start public health screenings. Instead, they moved quickly, first and foremost, as we all do, to protect our elders. Tribal officials rallied support from the community and organized a team of folks to call and check on every elder resident every single day. They built temporary shelters. They established a 24-7 medical hotline. They created a disinfection team to help essential workers stay safe and to stay open for business. They stocked frozen meat so that just in case of a food shortage, they could feed their entire community free. They established checkpoints on all roads leading into the reservation. And when the governor tried to intervene, they pushed back. 
They stood up for their sovereignty and they kept their tribal citizens safe. That's remarkable in its own right, and even more so considering that while we were rolling out this level of community care at a moment when governments with far more resources were stumbling in their own pandemic response, it raises the questions. If Indian country doesn't have a trillion dollar tax base, a center for disease control, then how is it that no matter how disproportionately our people suffered throughout the pandemic, we still led the way with the highest rates of COVID testing? For me, the answer starts with an understanding of loss. More than most nations, we know that when we lose anyone, especially our elders, we're losing even more than someone we love. We're losing knowledge and wisdom that simply cannot be replaced. Culture and history passed down through generations. And so at this time, to honor the memory of those we lost to COVID-19, our grandmothers and our grandfathers, our parents, our siblings, our teachers and friends, I ask you to please join me in a moment of silent prayer. Well, thank you. Today, as we gather for the first time in person since the outbreak of COVID, it makes me very proud to say that we haven't just survived this pandemic. Like an iron in fire, we've emerged stronger and brighter. Now it is the time for us to collectively look forward and ask ourselves, where do we go for forward and where do we go from here? After all, this crisis isn't over. And there is no shortage of challenges on our horizon. For too many of us, housing that is safe, decent, and affordable remains out of reach. More than 70% of existing housing, tribal housing stock requires extensive repairs. And while Congress recently allocated more than a billion dollars to Indian housing programs, we are still facing a housing crisis. Now, HASDA hasn't been reauthorized for more than a decade. And we won't have any real lasting change until it is. Only then will we be able to increase native ownership, home ownership, improve veterans' housing, and end homelessness in tribal communities. And every election, when native people try to exercise our right to vote, we run into the same old, old barriers. Unequal access to voter registration and anti-democratic requirements for traditional IDs and mailing addresses. Our people were the last citizen group to gain the right to vote. That means however much progress we've made, there's so much more to do to close the political gap in political equity. We must pass the Native American Voting Rights Act to ensure that we have true parity with every American voter and every other American voice. Native disenfranchisement happens at the ballot box, as we all know. It happens in state and federal budgets. It happens with state taxation. And now we're starting to see it manifest uglier than ever in the United States Supreme Court. 
In case after case, tribal nations face dangerous threats to tribal sovereignty. The damage caused by adverse decisions and the danger they create are some of the greatest challenges facing Indian country today. Last summer, when the United States handed down, the Supreme Court handed down the decision in Castro versus Huerta, the majority held that states and the federal government have concurrent jurisdiction to prosecute crimes committed by non-Indians against Indians in Indian country. That means the federal government, the state government, has jurisdiction to prosecute crimes on our reservation against our people, and we do not. How just is that? We are the only jurisdiction within our lands with crimes committed against our people that don't have jurisdiction. And we now know there are cases in the pipelines where municipalities, cities, are seeking to exercise that jurisdiction and not us, and arguing and not us. That will not go unanswered. That we are going to unite our voices and stand together. The ruling and the reasoning it was based upon is an affront, a direct affront and attack on tribal sovereignty. Although it's still too early for us to see the full consequences of that decision, we must not wait to fight back. Tribal nations must be swift and decisive in demanding a legislative response to the Castro Huerta decision. I personally know how powerful our collective action can be because for the last five years now, I've been working closely with tribal leaders to defend the Indian Child Welfare Act. When a lawsuit threatened to undercut our sovereign authority to protect the interests of our children, I stood with the leaders of Morongo, Cherokee, Oneida, and Navajo. Together, we traveled to the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans for the hearing in Brackeen versus Holland. And when the case went to the Supreme Court last November, we were there with an amicus brief signed by nearly 500 tribal nations and 60 organizations. For hours, we sat together listening to arguments and questions that demonstrated a complete lack of understanding, let alone respect for the sacred connection between us and our children. We don't yet know the outcome of the Brackeen case, but the strength, unity, and collaboration of our tribal nations gives me and us courage and hope. More than that, it gives us certainty that if the justices hand down any adverse decision, it will not go unanswered. And I want to make it very clear, absolutely clear, we will not give up on a single child in this fight. We owe this fight not only to future generations of Native children, but also to the ones who came before us including the 150,000 children who were separated from their families and forced into boarding schools. As our investigations continue to uncover the atrocities perpetrated in boarding schools across North America, we need to prepare ourselves mentally, physically, and spiritually to confront the full pain of that history. We must seek out the facts and own them so that we can eventually clear the path to an era of truth, healing, and empowerment.
There is nothing that they can do to separate us from the gifts our creator gave to us. There is nothing they can do to break or sever the spiritual connection and bond that we have. And as I said, we may have ceded millions of acres of land across this country by treaty, but we never relinquish that spiritual connection. Every inch of these sacred lands that we now stand upon all across this continent belong to us and our people and our ancestors and future generations. It's also true for our sacred lands and waters. There is a teaching that I often refer to from Chief Seattle. We do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. And at a moment when the earth is in crisis, it isn't just for our children. And it's not just our children counting on us. The whole world is looking to us for leadership. In January, I had the opportunity to attend the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. What I saw represented there is a global community who wants to deploy resources to fight climate change on a massive scale. Not just millions of dollars, not just billions of dollars, trillions of dollars. At the same time, the world's most powerful governments are falling short of the 2015 Paris Agreement and the UN Sustainable Development Goals. The world's largest companies are being sued by their shareholders for failing to protect their investments against climate risk. In other words, the ivory towers are failing. So I ask you, in the absence of leadership, who is better qualified than Indian country to restore our planet's most vital ecosystems? Who has a longer track record when it comes to sustainable forestry and water management? Who can offer a tighter nexus between dollars invested in actual on-the-ground change? This isn't just my opinion. It's a growing consensus. For two years running, the Department of State extended diplomatic credentials for the National Congress of American Indians to attend the UN's leading conference on climate change. And so for the first time in history, we showed up at COP26 and then at COP27. We made ourselves heard and people around the planet are listening to us, to the National Congress of American Indians. Because there's no denying, when you invest with a for-profit business or an NGO, it's hard to know exactly where your money is going. But when you invest precious climate funds with tribal nations, you could take it to the bank. Investors know we're going to repatriate lands. They know we're going to value water as a sacred resource. They know we're going to do everything in our power to protect the earth because that's exactly what we've been doing for tens of thousands of years. Finally, traditional ecological knowledge is being taken seriously as an equal and indispensable partner to Western science. It simply isn't possible to achieve sustainability or prevent wildfires or restore balance to nature without the practices that tribal nations have perfected for generations and for centuries. 
Earlier when I mentioned the World Economic Forum, when I was there, I had a meeting with the forum's chairperson and founder, Klaus Schwab. This is a man with access to the world's leading scientists, the most powerful heads of state, the most influential business leaders. And do you know what he told us? He said, one of the most confounding things about climate change is that it requires people to take a holistic view of life on Earth. And from his perspective, the only citizens on the planet remaining that have a truly holistic understanding of nature and our place within it are the 500 million indigenous peoples around the world. We are the only ones left with that perspective and that unbroken chain of teachings and value and wisdom and timeless proven solutions. Now that isn't breaking news to any of us, but when I hear it from the head of the WEF to me, that signals a tipping point. More and more global leaders are starting to recognize that they need our guidance and our leadership more than we need theirs and more than we need them. And here I'll go a step further. The fact is we have sovereign political status, a national congress, and an international network of advocates and allies. That is why we can never be reduced to a racial category or a special interest group. When politicians forget that we have political power, we remind them. When companies forget that we have economic and social power, we remind them. And we are using that power to make incredible progress for the earth and all things living. And I here personally want to share an example. And I want to do a shout out to my friends and family from the affiliated tribes of Northwest, our Northwest tribes. Yes, <laughs> we're in the house. <laughs> we came together to adopt, after a series of meetings, a resolution that defined our minimum standards for protecting the earth and addressing climate change. We set out to achieve what no president has been able to accomplish, no governor has been able to accomplish, and that is to hold industry accountable for the widespread degradation and damage that they continue to cause every single day with every metric ton that's emitted into the horizon and into the air. And they came to Washington State and dropped $33 million of out-of-state money to kill our campaign. Our vision for what we knew was minimally necessary. And they killed that citizen's initiative. But we didn't back down. We came back stronger and we came back harder. And we made sure, and it was in our heart, and in our mind, in our spirit, that failure simply was not an option, and we were not going to stop until they were held accountable and until they paid a price. And guess what? We did it. We passed the Climate Commitment Act in the Washington State Legislature. In that bill, 10% of revenues go directly to tribal nations so that we can restore our salmon so that we can regenerate our ecosystems. And we held industry accountable. Reporters have called I-1631 the most aggressive climate change initiative in American history. 
Why? Because we imposed this tax, an estimated $1 billion into clean air, water, energy, and local communities without our tribes at AT&I. That would not have happened. Without Indian country's voice and our spiritual strength and our wisdom and that which we do carry into our DNA, it would not have happened. And we came back stronger. The other thing I want to mention is that when we step in to our role and into our place as Native people, we can continue to not only fight this fight for future generations, we can put out calls to action for our collective effort. And that is something I want to do here and now. And I'm going to help the teleprompter guy. <laughs> I'm in call to action. <laughs> so the, the call to action that I want to be able to provide this morning is that when I was elected to this office, I stood before you and said that the real power and strength of Indian country isn't in Washington, D.C. The real strength and power of Indian country lies within our tribal nations at home. One of the core tenets of NCAI is that we have profound strength in numbers and in a unified voice advocating for Indian country. Between all of us, we have generations of wisdom, lived experience, policy expertise, technical skills, a wealth of knowledge that can make a difference and save lives. That doesn't mean that we have to agree about everything, just the opposite. Our perspectives are as varied and as vibrant as our experiences. And those experiences have taken us to every corner of this country. We have lived in every socioeconomic condition through every human possibility. We are the descendants of our ancestors and the ancestors of our descendants. When we speak, generations past speak through us for the generations yet to be born. That means every Native voice is authentic. Every Native voice has value and every Native voice is needed. Our ancestors understood this very well. Collective effort is something they practice with intention. One of the most powerful ways we can call on their strength is by working together. That's why when NCAI was established nearly 80 years ago, our founders envisioned a Congress of sovereign nations, a Congress led by tribal leaders. It's also why as president, I've sought out opportunities to advance the interests of tribal nations by work, working closely with our other national and intertribal organizations. I've come to realize they aren't just partners. Stacy Bowen met with us yesterday at the board, NCI's board and NIHB, and she shared with us something very personal at the beginning of her presentation about her 
And it was intended to convey the love that she has for each and every one of us that sit at that table as the leaders of the National Congress of American Indians. And it was in that presentation I realized that not only do we have partner national organizations, we have family. Every person that works within our national organizations, our advocates, our attorneys, our allies, they are family. Our regional organizations that do the hard work on the ground and on the front lines with each and every tribe within their region. They are our family. We together have this opportunity, and you have my word that this year, coalition building and collective effort will be at the very top of NCAI's agenda. No doubt the challenges and confrontations that I've described will continue, just as they have for every generation of tribal leadership. Back when NCAI was founded in 1944, we were formed in full-on defense against a powerful movement to terminate tribal nations. When all hope seemed to be gone, our founders focused on their duty to provide for the next seven generations. They were, as we are, determined to defend tribal sovereignty. Our legacy of resilience and achievement is what my dear friend and mentor Billy Frank Jr. had in mind when he used to talk about staying the course. And so as proud as I am of NCAI, that we'll soon be celebrating our 80th anniversary. And as proud as I am of our history and our achievements, let us look forward. And right here in this moment, I want to speak directly to the next generation of leaders, our youth. The problems of our time cannot be solved in a lifetime. We are up against challenges that will span generations. However, much of what we do and much of what we plan for today, you are the ones who will make those plans a reality. Stay the course and make it your own. You are ready. Which brings me right back to where I started. We have prepared for this moment, not only for our lives, but over the course of many lifetimes. We are that honored generation that gets to perfect the sacrifices made by the generations that have gone before us. We are in that sacred moment, in that day of reckoning, and we get to perfect all that they've done in order to gift to that next generation of leaders, everything we have in us and everything that we carry. Today, the state of Indian nations is strong because our ancestors work hard to make it so. If we continue to work together, we can make their legacy, our tribal nations, everlasting and eternal. This is the true strength and power of the National Congress of American Indians. The collective strength of our tribal nations, tribal citizens, our allies, all of us working together, standing united as one. When any tribe, any single person in Indian country faces a challenge, we need all of Indian country to just show up.
as I look at the path ahead, I can see clearly that we are ready to walk forward. No matter what the challenges we face, we can face a global pandemic. We can face generations of crisis and we'll continue to not only meet those challenges, but we will continue to do as our ancestors have since time began and that's to emerge stronger and more resilient because our story is so much larger than the traumas we've endured. Indian country is defined past, present, and future by our resilience, by our potential, and by our indestructible spiritual strength, the beauty that lies within each and every one of us as an individual human being with spirit and our collective spirit. Where we can walk into a battlefield, no weapon formed against us can ever prosper, no bullet, no piece of legislation, no court decision. If we exercise the rights that are inherently ours, if we step fully into that power and embrace it every single day with every single breath of our being, from when sun up to sundown and every minute in between, nothing can stop us. But first, we have to show up. For our families, our communities, all tribal nations and indigenous peoples around the world. For humankind and for our relatives in the ocean and the sky. Let us do what we can to build the future that our creator intended. The future that we all see that is so very bright and prosperous. So full of peace. So full of balance. So full of harmony and perfect love for one another. The time is now. Let's get to work. Thank you. Uh, there's one other thing I wanted to do and this this family and friends is something as I mentioned in a fasted state I'm given clarity and direction and prayer and I, ask, I want to ask my good friend brother uh, Joe Garcia to come join me here serving on the board past president to stand with me Stand right here. I don't know if we can fit on the podium with me or on this stool or maybe next. <laughs> As I prepared for this address, I was called on to offer a prayer in order to ensure that the leadership of the National Congress of American Indians is seamless. Right now, there is someone in our midst who will emerge as the president, the new president of the National Congress of American Indians come November. And I personally can feel that weight, that dilemma, because this position requires a full-on surrender of everything you have in you 
your mind, your body, your spirit. And it requires the support and strength of your council, of your family, your citizens. And it demands an awful, it depends, it demands everything in you. And so with my brother here standing with me, Heavenly Father, we come to you with humility. We come to you knowing that the future that you have intended is already ours. We come to you knowing that the next president of the National Congress of American Indians is known by you and only by you. We come and we ask that as our next president searches their mind, their heart, and their spirit, and whether or not to accept that which you have ordained, I call and ask humbly that you impart upon their mind, their body, and their spirit a peace, clarity, and vision, strength, grace, and mercy. We ask that as they discuss this decision, this important decision with their family and their closest friends and supporters, that you too give them the words of support and encouragement that's going to make all the difference in the world to our next president. And I ask that as our next president seeks that resolution from their tribal council, for full-on support, that in those discussions and in those deliberations, that you impart upon those leaders full-on support for our next president, and that they stand firm and give that president a foundation upon which they can go out into all of the world just as an arrow. Our next president is going to represent the tip of that arrow, that indestructible tip, so that when we launch that arrow in the four directions, it will be indestructible, it will be fiery, and it will have the full support of all of Indian country, of all of their friends, of all of their allies, all of the strength that lies within each and every one of us from when time began until the end of time. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen. And everybody says... It is an honor to deliver this congressional response to the annual State of Indian Nations Address. As the senior senator from Massachusetts, I have the privilege of serving the Wampanoag tribe of Gayhead Aquina and the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe in the United States Senate, and I am deeply grateful for their partnership. But I recognize that, as members of the United States Congress, my colleagues and I have profound responsibilities to all tribal nations, responsibilities that are intertwined with the United States nation-to-nation -nation relationship with each tribal nation, trust and treaty responsibilities that arise from how the United States took so much from Native people over the course of generations. The nation-to-nation -nation relationship between the United States and tribal nations is deeply important, and I am grateful to the National Congress of American Indians for all its work to enhance that relationship, including through dialogues like this one. President Sharp said clearly in her address that the state of Indian nations is strong, 
and that Indian country has made incredible progress in recent years. I fully agree. And I view it as Congress's job to make it even stronger and to play a role in helping tribal nations make even more incredible progress. So to all of you who demand the federal government do that, thank you. To tribal leaders and advocates who came from near and far to advocate for advance appropriations for the Indian Health Service or expanding tribal jurisdiction in the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act or protecting tribal lands, waters, and sacred sites from pipelines or mining or for the establishment of an Office of Tribal Affairs at the Treasury Department or for so many other important causes, let me say it again, thank you. And to all of you hard at work revitalizing your languages, whether it's those who are part of the Wampanoag Language Reclamation Project in Mashpee, Massachusetts, or those at the Cherokee Nation Durban Feeling Language Center that opened last year, or those sharing your languages with your youngest at home, I also want to say thank you. And to those of you who are teaching Native young people, whether it's at Navajo Technical Institute or at the Choctaw Nation Head Start that I had the chance to visit a few years back, or at any of the other hundreds of places of learning, I want to say again, thank you. And to those of you who take time to educate us in Congress about our responsibilities, about how empowering tribal nations, upholding tribal sovereignty, and furthering tribal self-determination are the surest route to prosperity in Indian country, again, I say thank you. Five years ago, I had the honor of speaking at NCAI's Executive Council Winter Session. And in my speech, I made a promise. I promised to fight to help write a story that overcomes the discrimination, the neglect, the greed, and the violence that Indian country so often faced as a result of the way that the United States has treated Native peoples. And since that time, I've worked hard to make good on that promise. I've co-sponsored well over a hundred pieces of legislation to benefit Indian country. And I myself have introduced dozens of bills in support of tribal nations. My bills have a wide range. They go from legislation to revoke the medals of honor awarded to the perpetrators of the Wounded Knee Massacre to efforts to ensure that tribal nations have ownership of electromagnetic spectrum over their lands, to bills to ensure that child abuse prevention funds and housing funds and public health grants all reach Indian country. And with your help, we've seen tremendous progress. One of my bills, the Native American Suicide Prevention Act, which required states to work with tribal nations when allocating funding for suicide prevention programs, was signed into law at the end of the last administration. And in December, President Biden signed into law my bill to ensure that tribal nations can directly access the federal stockpile of emergency medical supplies. But here is the most important thing.
I could not have done that work without you. I could not have done it without the input, the guidance, the education, and the wisdom from NCAI and from tribal leaders and advocates from every corner of the United States. And I know that the same goes for many of my colleagues here in Congress. We can't do our jobs. We can't work toward fulfilling the federal government's trust and treaty obligations without you. You've been showing up, and it's making a real difference, as President Sharp's address made clear. So please, keep it up, because together we are building a future worth fighting for. And your ongoing efforts are critical because there are still obstacles and threats to tribal sovereignty that we must work together to remove. For example, it is beyond time for Congress to pass a clean Karcheri fix. The Karcheri decision is a roadblock to tribal sovereignty that negatively impacts many tribal nations, including the two federally recognized tribal nations of Massachusetts. By helping to secure tribal homelands, a Karcheri fix would advance tribal sovereignty and would benefit tribal economies. I will work with you to keep up this fight. As President Sharp rightly noted, the Indian Child Welfare Act is imperiled by this Supreme Court. Now, for decades, ICWA has been crucial in protecting the best interests of Native children, of their families, and of their communities. And it shouldn't even be a question. ICWA is clearly constitutional. I know many of your nations have submitted amicus briefs to defend ICWA, and I have joined in two of those briefs as well. If the Supreme Court overturns this law, it will be more important than ever to protect Native children and to stand up for tribal sovereignty. So I want you to know that I am right there with you on this. Even as Native children face new threats, the United States still has not reckoned with its shameful history of cultural genocide and assimilation practices through its Indian boarding school policies. And that is why I have worked with my dear friend, Secretary Deb Holland, back when she was still in Congress, and with wonderful advocates to introduce a bill to establish a commission to advance healing from the shameful legacy of the Indian boarding schools. Congresswoman Sharice Davids and I reintroduced this bill in the last Congress. Last year, the Senate Committee on Indian Affairs held a hearing on this issue and on my bill, and I want to acknowledge the good bipartisan work that the committee's chair and vice chair, Senators Brian Schatz and Lisa Murkowski, have done to advance Congress's work on this issue. Secretary Holland's launch of the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative at the Department of Interior has also been critical in elevating this issue. In her address, President Sharp highlighted the importance of Native representation across the highest levels of government. And she is absolutely right. I'm a big believer that 
personnel is policy, and that means representation matters. Secretary Holland is a perfect example of that. But we still have more work to do to get this across the finish line, and your advocacy here will make a real difference. Now, President Sharp also mentioned my bill, the Honoring Promises to Native Nations Act. And if you'll bear with me for a minute, I'd like to talk about it too. You may remember that the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights published a report in 2018 called Broken Promises. It found that the federal government has woefully underfunded programs for Native peoples in areas of criminal justice and public safety, health care, education, housing, and economic development. And it dedicated a chapter to each of those five topics. The report correctly stated, the United States expects all nations to live up to their treaty obligations. It should live up to its own, end quote. And soon after that, Deb Holland and I decided to take action by developing legislation together. We worked with numerous stakeholders to prepare a legislative proposal for the Honoring Promises to Native Nations Act. And then we incorporated the many great suggestions that Indian country offered in response. When Secretary Holland moved on to her current job, Congressman Derek Kilmer of Washington State took the baton from her, and he is now my excellent partner. In December, we introduced the Honoring Promises to Native Nations Act, and it has five titles to match the five broken promises chapters. Throughout the bill, we prioritized full funding for federal Native programs. No more shortfalls. And the bill ensures that the funding going to Indian Country is mandatory. Fulfilling trust and treaty obligations is not optional. You know, too often federal decisions are made for Indian Country, not with Indian Country. And for that reason, our bill articulates principles to ensure that meaningful and timely tribal consultation is the norm. And it begins to lay out a path to ensure that free, prior, informed consent becomes the standard. President Sharp has championed this point for years, and I want to thank her and I want to thank NCAI for their invaluable assistance with the entire bill. So, although this bill won't become law immediately, I think it's crucial for Congress to have legislation that says unequivocally the United States has broken its promises and the United States must start making good on them. Now, I will reintroduce the Honoring Promises to Native Nations Act this Congress, and your continued input and partnership will remain indispensable in moving forward. As I look forward to the rest of 2023 and the remainder of the 118th Congress, I'm filled with hope. Hope for all that we can accomplish together. Hope for continued learning, partnership, 
and new opportunities. Hope for the future of Indian country. It has been an honor to speak to you today, and I thank you once more for all that you do. Thank you.